we're going to go ahead and get started, okay? So uh, tonight, uh, we're going to be doing we're gonna be doing something a little different than we've been doing the last couple of weeks. We're currently in a series right now called You Asked It, and what we've been doing is we've been trying to answer the questions that you guys have asked on those index cards a couple months ago. So hopefully we've, hopefully we've been going over a bunch of questions that you guys uh, maybe didn't know the answer to. Well, as I was looking through our list here, we... Uh, we saw a couple of questions that had to do with evolution and creation and, and just essentially, you know, how, how everything came into being. And so um, I, I uh, personally, my, this is my friend Mike. Everybody say, what's up, Mr. Mike Smith? There we go. See, they're a friendly group. They're a friendly group. In fact, how many of you guys know Mike? Anybody here know? Well, you know him as uh, Mr. Mr. I'm sorry, Mr. Smith. Okay. You don't call him Mike. All right. This is <laughs> Mike here is one of the teachers here at the school at Genoa Christian Academy. And um, I, I've actually had some conversations with Mike about this topic before. We used to do a podcast in kids' ministry called The Parent Podcast. And so I invited Mike over one day, and we recorded this podcast. And I was just like, hey, I, the whole purpose of the podcast was to teach parents how to talk to their kids about creation and evolution. And, and so I asked Mike, and we ended up doing a two-hour podcast, which normally they were about 30, 40 minutes. But I, I didn't want to finish. I was like, man, this is good stuff, right? So what we're going to do tonight is the format is going to be, we're just going to sit here. I'm going to ask Mike a couple of questions and, uh, about creation and stuff. A lot of questions that I've had myself. And then um, what we want you guys to do is it, it, we don't want you to leave here um, uh, with a ton of questions, which I think it's, it's obviously impossible to discuss the whole topic of evolution and creation. But if you guys have a question that you want Mike to answer tonight, do what uh, Andrew said and just text that, that number um, and, and text your question. And what happens is Andrew and Zach Burleson in the back are going to be getting all these questions in, and they're going to choose the ones, they're going to put them up on the screen, and then Mike, we're going to put them on the spot. Like, we're going to see if he's up to the task. And uh, the question will be on the screen. And so, so be thinking of some questions, okay? And remember, there are no dumb questions, all right? And not always true, but okay. All right, so with that being said... Um, Mike, uh, again, thank you for, you can talk on your mic, make sure it's working. One, two, three. It's you working. All right, we're good. All right. Okay. So, so, so um, this obviously is a topic that, that a lot of kids, I, I know for, I know a lot of people in here, if you go to a public school, chances are you've heard the evolution side of it, probably a lot, right? Um, if you go to GCA here, I, I love that at GCA, I've, I've talked to these guys where it's, it's not just, they don't just shove creation down your throat, but they also show you the arguments for evolution and we show you how the Christian one pans out, but both of them are theories, right? And so what, what, we've, what I thought would be a good way to start is if uh, we, we'll, we'll do what Andrew Foltz always says, is we've got to define our terms. So define the terms, right? So what I want to do right off the bat is if you can give us a definition of what evolution is, and then on the flip side, what is creationism? So okay. why don't you go ahead and start? So for those that don't know me, let me back up just a little before I jump into that question. I've been in education for 40 years. I typically teach physics, chemistry, AP chemistry, physical science. Uh, I'm more into the, the heavier sciences, okay? Uh, retired from Big Walnut about four years ago. So I was in the public school for 16 years. Prior to that, I was at Marysville High School for a few years, uh, Worthington Christian for about 16 years, and I've been here for four. So I've been on both sides as far as the Christian school and the public school. And when I was at uh, Big Walnut, of course, I know what the state standards are, and I know where evolution fits in those state standards. So I've worked with it every day. And I, if you're in a public school, you're kind of in an awkward situation because there's certain questions you need to be able to answer to pass the test. And unfortunately, sometimes you'll answer in ways that you don't totally agree with, but you're trying to pass the test. 
And so that's kind of the tightrope I had to walk for many, many years. So the basic premise of evolution is that natural processes by themselves can explain everything. Now, it doesn't argue whether there's a God or not. It just says he's not needed. That the processes with enough time would have made everything that you see around us, the universe, people, the animals, the whole thing. So evolution is a basic premise that natural processes alone can explain everything. Creation, on the other hand, says no. It took something beyond the natural processes. It took something supernatural, a creator. So creation is looking at the fact that this wouldn't be like we see around us without God being part of it. Now, when you look at creation, there's actually two views of creation out there. There's one that's called special creation, and there's one that's called biblical creation. Special creation basically says uh, everything's not going to self-organize, the chemistry, the physics, everything is not going to happen without some force making it happen. But we don't know who that force is. It, it might be let the force be with you. Biblical creation is saying, no, it's the God of the Bible, and he's the force, and not only is he the force, but he also gave us a, an account of how he did it. So that's kind of the difference. One saying there had to be a creator specifically for us, the Bible, and God. The other says, no, there didn't need to be a creator. In fact, if there was a creator, he's not allowed to play. He's not allowed to be part of this process because evolution and naturalistic processes by themselves have to explain everything. Gotcha. All right. Hey, look, before we go any further, let me ask you guys, um, who in here, in your school, you've been taught evolution before? Raise your hand if you've been taught evolution. Okay. All right. <laughs> Some of the Christian kids are like, wait, what? All right. Now, same people who, wrote, who raised your hands. Have you been taught creationism also, or is it just evolution? Just evolution? Yeah? Okay. All right. Well, well that's good. I mean, that's not good. I mean, it's good that that's where we're at tonight. But, um, but ju just to kind of recap what you said there, I, I think, um, uh, you know, creationism, obviously, we, we, Mike and, and myself and, and most Christians, well, all Christians should say that, that we believe that a creator created everything. It's very important. In fact, I'm gonna t we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But, but evolution, I, I think you could pr pretty much sum it up by saying that everything is just a random chance that, uh, that, that it, there was no purpose, no meaning. It just kind of happened, right? right. Which, which is what the big – we're going to talk about the Big Bang in a little bit. But I just wanted to kind of clear, uh, say that. L let me ask you this. I know that I've had discussions with Christians before who, um, who believe that, that evolution still happens. Now, uh, can you be a Christian and believe in evolution? What do you think? Okay, so I've got to put another term out there. Do it. So when you look at evolution, we kind of break it in half. We talk about microevolution and we talk about macroevolution. Have you heard those terms before? Okay, so microevolution, another way of looking at it is population shifts. So the story that you'd get in, in a book is that if you dropped a bunch of brown and white rabbits in the Arctic, that natural selection would take over, and before long, you'd just have a population of white rabbits. And the population would no longer have dark rabbits in it. Uh, if you had finches on the island, and this was Darwin's big example, that you could have uh, one island that has large beak finches, another island would have small beak finches because of the food source. The large beak would have an advantage if there's a lot of seeds on the island, and the small beak would have an advantage if there's a lot of insects on the island. So natural selection weeded out the, the other one, and only one population was found on his islands, okay? Now, that is what's called microevolution, and as a Christian, I would never argue against that. Natural selection says that when you have 
a litter of animals, there's going to be some that are more suited to survive than others. And that was what natural selection is about. The strongest deer survives and breeds and carries on its own. The, small, the, the smartest fish is the one that survives and escapes the predators. But understand something. The finches that were on Darwin's Island were finches when it started, and there were finches when they ended. They didn't change to some other type of species. That's macroevolution. So macroevolution says, with enough little changes, if they all add up, eventually we'll get a big change. Microevolution we see, that's population. That, that's God putting diversity in your genes. That's why some of you have different color hair, different color skin, different color eyes, different heights, different talents. That's the variety that's in your genetic pool. But you're not going to change into some other creature. Dogs don't become cats. Okay? They stay within their created kind. So there's a boundary. And the Bible establishes that in Genesis. In science, we've observed microevolution. We have never observed macroevolution. And when you ask an evolutionist, why have we never seen macroevolution? It's because they say, well, it takes way too long for it to occur. For something to change, it takes thousands and thousands of changes. And they don't happen just overnight. So nobody lives long enough to see that. Well, then if science is the art of observation, and nobody's ever seen it, is evolution scientific? Because you can't observe it. Well, God created. Has anyone seen that? No. I, I'm taking God at his word, but I've never seen it. So is that scientific? No, I accept it on faith. Both theories are taught as origin theories, but neither one can be established or disproved scientifically because they're beyond the powers of observation. So then we get into inference. We look at the fossils. We look at the rock layers. We look at things and say, well, can't you just imagine? Well, I'm sorry when you go, can't you just imagine? That's not science. So, can you be a Christian and believe in evolution? Does evolution occur today? Theistic evolution is a belief that there's a God behind the evolution. Again, he's there. We don't deny he exists, but he's not part of the process. So, he really is kind of on the shelf and not allowed to play. Well, I was, okay, you got to understand, I was an atheist until I was 24. I went to Ohio State University. I graduated with both my degrees from Ohio State University. I was an evolutionist, 100%. And if you don't believe in a God... You can, you can only believe in evolution. That's no other option. Does that make sense? So I was an atheistic evolutionist. When I became a Christian, I still believed in evolution because that was all my schooling. That's what all my training was. That was what was in my head. And I did not have the need to question it. So I kept my thinking in two separate compartments. My religious beliefs, my faith positions, was in one part, but I didn't let it hook up with my science positions. How do you become a Christian? Yeah, that's exactly, that's all you need, believe Jesus. Accept him as that payment. That makes you a believer right there. It has nothing to do with about your position on baptism or on the sacraments or on what day is holy or what food you can eat. That's, that's all man customs that kind of build on top of that. What makes you a Christian? Your position of Jesus Christ and his position with you in your life. Now, can you be a misinformed Christian? That's what I was. So because I had, well, let me go back even farther. Because I, at 14 years old, I had attended the church all my life. My parents had sent me to church. I learned all the stories. I knew, I knew about, you know, Samson. I knew about 
Pastor Daniel. I knew about the flood. I knew about all the stories of the Bible, right? And I remember going in a biology classroom, and I was hearing about evolution, man, amoeba to man. And I didn't fit with what I'd been taught in my church, in my Sunday school classes. So I remember going back to my Sunday school teacher and saying, how do I fit these things together? In science, I'm being taught this, but in church, I'm being taught that. And that pastor, and he was my youth pastor, said to me, to know who created the universe, we go to the Bible. To know how he created the universe, we need to go to science. Here's the problem with that. If you've read Genesis, God gave us way too many details to ignore it. If you read Genesis, if you read about Noah and the flood, he meant for us to understand that as history. So as a 14-year-old, I knew the Bible was presenting itself as a true account. And if I couldn't believe Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, where could I start believing the Bible? I believe in Jesus Christ because of what the Bible said. Well, I've already thrown out the first part of the Bible. If I can't believe it, can I believe the gospel? How can I believe the gospel? Because I'm not smart enough to know when to believe it and when not to believe it. So as a 14-year-old, I walk away from the church. I said, I don't know. I don't trust that book. It's outdated. It's non-scientific. You know, I, I, I had all these things. So later in life, when I became a believer, and I had problems, and I had questions, my first thought wasn't, let's go to the Bible and get answers. Because I'd already decided the Bible was not valid. So if I had problems with my marriage, I didn't go to the Bible to get guidance. If I had problems with my kids, I didn't go to the Bible for guidance. So the issue of creation evolution is more of an issue of biblical inerrancy. Can I trust the Bible? And when I started to re-examine my science education, and I could give you hours and hours and hours of examples, I found out that the more I looked into what I accepted without question in science, the stupider I felt because I had accepted so much without ever questioning it. And when I started questioning it, I found out that science did not support evolution. The true sciences supported that it couldn't have happened by itself. So then I started gaining confidence again in the scripture, and then I started going to the scripture for answers, and then I started to get upset because then I found out all these questions I'd had for all these years had been answered hundreds and thousands of years ago, but I didn't go and look there because someone had convinced me the Bible was outdated and no longer valid. So can I be a Christian and believe in evolution? The answer is yes, but I'm a misinformed Christian, and I've lost the word, which the Bible talks about, the double-edged sword that can separate. You know, all Scripture is inspired, so I can use it for correction and for policy. So these are things God gave us, and I had thrown it away. That was a long answer, sorry. It was good, it was good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's good. I, 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 I enjoy that you, you talk about how important Scripture is, right? Where, where we, we try to talk about this often where, you know, as Christians, we're, the Bible is our document of truth, right? This is what we go to for meaning, for truth, for all these things. And if you fully believe, especially the macro evolution, right, that, that and an example of that is monkeys to humans, right? Okay, so... So that, that would be the example of macro. Like, we just don't see it when, when species change from one species to another. But, but, but when he, what, what uh, Mr. Smith was saying is that if you believe what the Bible says, if you're a Christian, the Bible is pretty clear on some of these things. And if, if you believe in macroevolution enough, then some of your beliefs are going to contradict what Scripture says, and then you've got a real problem there. 
Because we as Christians, again, the, the most important thing is that we stay true to what the Bible says. So, so I'm glad you said that. So <laughs> why don't you give us an example real quick. I, I think you said the, the birds and stuff, but what's an example of, uh, of microevolution that we have seen? The, these are little changes within a certain species, right? Okay, so if, if you look at the dogs, <coughs> excuse me, I'm getting over a cold, so my voice is a little weak. If you have, like, I, I've got a Doberman, and that's the breed I really like. I've got a... a you know, people who like other breeds. I've even got a daughter who likes a poodle, which I'm not sure what that is. But, you know, these are purebred dogs, right? Now, if you breed two poodles together, you're not going to get a Doberman. Or you're going to ask for your money back, right? Because that's the whole point of a purebred, is that you've eliminated certain options. You're not going to get a long-haired Doberman. You're not going to get a poodle that doesn't have curly hair. So there's certain premise within that species that someone has bred for that. Well, those are still dogs. But they have now been changed into a species or a subspecies that we say, okay, that's a poodle, that's a chihuahua, that's a Great Dane, and they have certain characteristic looks. Now, where did all these come from? Where did all these different breeds come from? But where did the original dogs come from? Right, from a, basically a wolf. So those wolves had all those characteristics of the poodle, the Great Dane, and the Chihuahua in that dog. And then what they did is somebody at some point domesticated them and started breeding them for certain characteristics. And some were for hunting, some were for guard dogs, some were for companions. So the microevolution is taking that, that variety called the wolf and narrowing it down into a channel, very selective, to make it into a species that I'm looking for. Now understand something, that's not evolution. Evolution is increasing diversity, not reducing diversity. Evolution wants to say how we can take something that has minimal options and see how with time it has more and more options, making it more viable. We don't see that. We breed horses the same way. Hitler tried to breed people that way. He came up with what he considered the master race and he tried to select people that were going to produce that particular quality. That's what he thought it should be, but it's all natural variation within our species. How many, pop, how many different, um, I don't want to use the word, how many different races are there of humans on this earth? Thank you. Say that loud. There's one. There's different variety, but we're all one race. The biblical definition of a race is they're interfertile. God said, be fruitful and multiply. And he said, within the kind, the animal kind, he made it. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Within the plant kind, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Within a kind, the definition is that it has the ability to reproduce. All races on the earth of humans are all interfertile. Therefore, we're all the same people group. There's one race on the earth. So think about that next time you hear about racial type of stuff. There's only one race. Actually, there's two races. There's the saved and the unsaved. That's the only race definition there is in the scripture. That's good. That's real good. Um, let, let, me, uh, let me ask you, uh, let's, uh, I want to ask you some questions that, I, that I've struggled with before. 
in, uh, with, with the evolution thing. And remember, if you guys have questions, text them in. Uh, they're taking them back there. Uh, let, let's do one. I, this is one that comes up all the time for me. I remember when I would be teaching in kids' church, kids would ask. And I'd always, I, I never fully knew the answer, but I, I, I kind of do, I guess. But tell me about dinosaurs. Like, where do dinosaurs fit? Anybody want to know about the dinosaurs? I always wonder about them, right? Where did they fit into? Did they die before the fall or before the flood? I don't know. Why don't you tell us, how do we have dinosaur uh, fossils, like all that stuff? Where does that fit into it? Magic. No. Um, <laughs> That's right. So the word dinosaur, <coughs> where did it come from? Why is it not in the Bible? Okay, the word dinosaur wasn't even invented until the 1800s. So you're not going to find the word dinosaur in the Bible because it wasn't even invented until they started digging up some of these relics, these fossils, and they started to come up with a name of this creature, the thunder lizard, the, the, the massive bones that once lived. So you're not going to find the word dinosaur in the Bible. Now, were dinosaurs made? Did man view them? Is there any records of that? And there's a lot of evidence of that. I, I don't know if any of you have gone down to the uh, Creation Museum down in the Cincinnati area. They've got tremendous amounts of resources there. I really, if you, if you want to take a field trip, that's the one place you really need to go. Probably the word dragon was used many times as a substitute for the word dinosaur. But there's other times, it's kind of interesting. There's words in the Bible that were not originally English, and we translated them into English, right? So I'm sure whatever the word is for horse, it wasn't horse when they wrote it down in the Hebrew. But when they translated it, they knew, hey, that was a horse, so let's call it the English version of a horse. Do you know any words that didn't make it to the English, that they left in the original? Look up behemoth, look up leviathan. There's two words that, again, God gave too many details. So when you read about behemoth, You'll see in the commentary, probably an elephant, probably a hippopotamus. But the problem is, is when they describe behemoth, and remember the story of Job, where Job had gone through a lot, he got to a point where he finally questioned God, as why did you ever let me be born? And if you read everything Job went through, that was a pretty minor question compared to everything he was going through. And God basically jerked him to the third heaven and gave him an education. And the point of the education was, look at everything I made, and Job, remember, I am God, and you're not. That, that was the point of that education. But he showed him behemoth. And he said, consider behemoth. And he talks about this gigantic creature that lived in the rivers. The, the water swarmed up to his mouth, and he had no fear. And unfortunately, in this description, people say, well, yeah, that was probably a hippopotamus and the, and the sides of the river of that elephant. It talks about this gigantic tail the behemoth had. He said it was like a giant cedar. Have you ever seen the tail of a hippopotamus or an elephant? Does giant cedar come to your head? No. That's why they left the word. Because again, God gave too many details for them just to broadly change it. The other one's Leviathan. He says to Job, consider Leviathan. Nobody puts his hand on Leviathan and does it twice. And he gives him a description about this animal that lived in the waters, had these scales that were so tight you couldn't penetrate it with a harpoon. It goes on and on, and they say, well, maybe a crocodile, big crocodile. You wouldn't touch a 40-foot crocodile, would you? But then it talks about Leviathan, ready for this? Igniting the coals with its breath, it breathed fire. 
I haven't seen many crocodiles do that. So they left it alone. So there's times that the Bible describes creatures. Historians have described creatures. Alexander the Great talked about seeing dragons. The Chinese talked about these dragons that they kept. So there's a lot of recorded history. They've actually found drawings of dinosaurs in places that ancient man shouldn't have been able to draw because dinosaurs were supposed to live millions of years before these men ever existed. And they can't explain that. So is the word dinosaur in the Bible? No, the word wasn't invented until the 1800s. Were there animals that matched our descriptions? Yes, it is both historically and biblically. That's and they were on the ark, by the way, so think about that one. <laughs> okay. Where did he put them? How big's a dinosaur? What do you mean, depends? Okay, and there's something else it depends on. What does a dinosaur come from? Egg. The biggest dinosaur egg was not much bigger than a cantaloupe, about this size. When that hatched, how big was the dinosaur that came out? About that size. No one said that Noah had to take the biggest animal on the ark. He had to take animals that could survive the flood. Noah didn't even gather the animals. God brought the animals to him. So no one said that he had to bring the biggest brontosaurus or the big diplodocus or the, the biggest T-Rex he could find. He brought ones that were young enough and viable enough to survive the flood and then reproduce afterwards. And if you read Job, he was in the river valley outside the Jordan, which was tropical. So after they came off the ark, any ones that had wandered in that valley probably would have survived because the weather was tolerable. And Job saw them. If they went the other way and they went into the weather being cold, it's the same reason crocodiles don't live in Columbus, Ohio. If they came here right now, they'd probably survive until when? Winter, and then they'd be dead. So the same thing with the dinosaur. Depending on where they were, some became extinct and some survived for a long time. Nice. All right. So dinosaurs are in the Bible. Great. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I, that, that question always intrigues me. Um, tell you what, before, before I go to my next question, let's go ahead and do, um, let, put one of the questions up. Hopefully you guys have been texting some. Let's do one from the crowd, all right? And we'll, uh, we'll put you on the spot here, Mr. Smith. All right. Do you have any back there? All right. Here we go. Um, how old is the earth from a creationist perspective? And how do you explain, car well, let's, let's, we'll do this in two, two, two here. So how old is the earth from a creationist perspective? So from your perspective, how old do you, would you say the earth is? I'm wondering whether Zach presented that question. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Exactly okay. If you look at the creation account and you look at so-and-so begotten so-and-so and, -so, and he was this old and then he had a kid and then it keeps going and you add them all together, you get an age somewhere in the seven to 8,000 year range. And there's a little debate that goes on as far as was a generation left out, is that a grandfather or is that a father? But you stay in the, the eight to maybe 10,000, 15,000 at the max. When you're dealing with evolution, they cannot live with that time. The reason for that is for evolution to occur, you need a freak. You can't have two dogs that have another puppy that's perfect. You need a freak dog. And somehow that freak dog has got to be better suited to survive than its parents. This is a dumb example, but let me give it to you, okay? You got this, this horse, self-respecting horse, marries with another horse. I don't know if they marry or not, but let's go with this. And it has a kid, but the kid is a weird kid. It's got a longer neck than normal. 
and he grows and he gets mature and nobody's wanting to date this freak because he just looks weird. He got this really extended neck. Now, if life was normal, he's going to die childless or horseless or whatever they're called, okay? But if there happens to be, at the same time the freak is born, a drought, and there's a shortage of food, and all the normal horses can only reach so high to get their food but can't get the top leaves because they aren't capable of getting up there, but here comes a freak with a long neck, guess what? He survives. He gets strong. And guess who ends up reproducing? The freak. And the next generation becomes a bunch of longer-necked horses than the earlier generation. And this goes on for a while, and maybe the freak has a freak. And this goes on and on. Now, here's the thing. These mutations are called beneficial mutations. And they've been yet to be documented. People keep talking about them happening, but in labs, they... They zap fruit flies, and they do all kinds of stuff with bacteria, and they try to speed up the process of mutation so they can show beneficial mutations. And they said, they don't happen very often. So for us to have evolution occur, we need them. It couldn't happen in 15,000 years. We need long periods of time to have time for this to occur. And then not only do you need the freak, but you need environmental conditions to change so that that offspring has a... a uh, survival value. If you don't have a drought, it didn't help him. He just died off. So these combinations of just chance circumstances are really rare. And for something to change from a, one animal to another, you need thousands of these. So 15,000 years doesn't work. 60,000 years doesn't work. A million years doesn't work when you look at the mathematics. You need millions and millions of years to have a possible chance for this to occur. So as a biblical creationist, Talking to an evolutionist, yeah, I, I personally feel it's somewhere around 8,000 years old. But from an argument standpoint, he's got to come to me with millions of years or he does not have a chance for his process to work. Which is typically why the Big Bang comes into a discussion at that point. Because the Big Bang gives you this big time element. Now the problem with that, and we'll come back to the Big Bang, is the Big Bang, if it's true, gives you time, but it's at the wrong place. It's before man ever evolved, before life ever happened, and they need it after life happened. It's not in the right place. So they need long periods of time, but it needs to be after life has started so we have time for it all to evolve. Now, how about carbon dating? The process of carbon dating, how many have studied carbon dating in school? Okay, maybe there's other methods called radiometric dating. They might use potassium argon. There's other isotopes they use. Well, the premise is that if I measure how much carbon-14 is in a bone, a, a piece of parchment, a cloth, and I compare it to the carbon-14 level of today, if they're not the same, then I had to be going through a decay process. It takes roughly 6,000 years for carbon-14 to change back into nitrogen about half of its load. So after 6,000 years, you'll have half the carbon that you had to begin with, carbon-14. Another 6,000 years, you'll have half of the half, or a quarter. Another 6,000 years, you'll have half of the half of the half, or an eighth. So when they dig up a relic, they analyze it, they look at how much carbon-14's in it, they compare it to present-day level, and they say, well, how many cycles did we have to go through? And then they assign a date to that relic. Now here's two problems with that. 
Number one, you have to know what the initial value of the carbon-14 was at the time that animal died. And we haven't been doing carbon-14 for that many years. So I don't know what it was like in the day of the dinosaurs. I have no idea what that level was. If it was lower than it is today, I'd automatically think that bone was very old because its levels were low. Does that make sense to you guys? I'm starting with an assumption. The assumption is I know the initial concentrations. Second, after so many half-lives, we're no longer able to analyze how much carbon-14 is there because the value is so low that our instrumentation doesn't pick it up. That puts carbon dating maximum 60,000 years. At that point, it's so low you can no longer detect it. So anytime someone says something's a million years old based on carbon dating, they're flat out lying to you because the method doesn't work beyond 60,000 years. Even if I bought everything else about it, they're starting assumptions. And they love to throw that stuff at you. Is that enough, or do you want yeah, to join no. the science course? <laughs> I think we're getting a science course. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, we'll tell you what, let's, let's stick with that same topic here, because the question up there, um, how do you explain carbon dating that says the Earth is much older? If you, you, know, if you look around, uh, a lot of people, a lot of scientists think that the world looks pretty old. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that we've talked about this before, that um, uh, the rock layers tend to be a way that they gauge the age of the Earth. And I like what you said about the carbon dating, because... Let me just make sure that I, I like to, you know, talk things out to make sure I understand it. But with carbon dating, so because we don't know how much carbon initially was in there, we, we can't, we, we can't, we, we have no idea how old it is, essentially. And you said the, the, the best estimate we have is 60,000 years? No, I'm saying that 60,000 years, that method no longer works. So I when see. you start talking about something, well, if you're talking about rocks that never had carbon in it, you can't use the method anyhow. You've got to go to okay. a different isotope. Right. Okay, and right. some of those are much longer half-lives. So right. some of them are, are to a point where I could actually date rocks. They would be in that longer thing. Right. The, 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 let me go back a little bit of what you said, okay? Okay. So if you go to the Grand Canyon, you see rock layer after rock layer after rock layer after rock layer. Geologists, especially when you're talking about in the 1800s, late 1800s, uh, 1900s, when Darwin was gaining a lot of success, they looked at this like pages of a history book. And as you peeled back a layer, you're going farther back in history. So the deeper you went, the older the rocks were. So the theory is, if we found an animal encapsulated in one of those rocks, it became buried at that point. And if we went to a lower rock and we found another creature similar to the one up here, but let's say simpler, then we can maybe conclude that that was the predecessor of that later one because it was in an earlier rock, and boy, it looks like we've seen some changes. Does that make sense? So as they go deeper and deeper into the rocks, they're basically saying we're pe peeling back the pages of history. And as we look at these forms, we're looking for something called a transitional form. A half this and a half that. Showing that we're changing from an a, uh, amphibian to a reptile, or from a reptile to a bird, or from a, you know, so we're changing half this, half that. You know what it's called if you don't find the transitional form? It's called a missing link. The artists, the scientists say it's got to be there, we just haven't found it yet. I went to a lecture once between two very well-known scientists, one a creationist and one an evolutionist. And the creationist stood up and said to the evolutionist, show me one uncontested transitional form and the debate is over, I concede. The evolutionists had a briefcase. 
And he said, in this briefcase, I've got hundreds of examples of transitional forms. And I was sitting there in the audience like you guys, and I thought, this is going to be the shortest debate in history. That guy's going to open that briefcase, and he's just going to lay out that creationist. One hour later, the briefcase had not come open yet. Because there are no transitional forms that aren't contested. You know how many missing links they are? All of them. If evolution is true, and Darwin felt this, he said, with enough digging, we're going to find all these things that were missing. Well, you know, with more digging since Darwin died, you know what we found? More unanswered questions. Things that we thought were transitional forms, we now found out that they're not what they thought they were because they dug up the rest of the body. They found other things. Let me give you one more example of appearance of age, okay? You guys get the idea that you might be here all night? You get me rolling, I can't shut up, I'm sorry. If you have a fossil, you understand that's not normal? An animal dies in my backyard, he does not become a fossil. If it's a cow, he becomes hamburger, okay? He's roadkill. What happens? Scavengers come. Bacteria come. They rot and decay. They don't become fossils. So when you see a fossil of a dragonfly that is so well preserved, you can see the veins in the wings. You can see fish preserved that are one is in the process of eating another when they died. Sharks that are absolutely flattened with the fin standing up. These are examples of a catastrophic death. And that's the only way you get a fossil, is if something is buried rapidly before predators can get to it and before bacteria can rot it. Every rock layer has fossils in it, down to the least of Precambrian. All those rock layers have shown they've had catastrophic events, and non-creationists agree with that. So they see a lot of local floods. Boy, that caused a flood, that must have killed those. This is a flood over here, that was a volcano. We got all these local catastrophes, but guess where we find them? Everywhere. When you have local catastrophes everywhere, what do you have? It's called a global catastrophe. And now you got support of the global flood. The fact that God did use it to do what? Kill all life, anything with the breath of life in its lungs, except for the Noah and the ark and the animals preserved on it. Now, when did this happen? Well, all I can say as a scientist, I know it happened after there was life on earth. Because you wouldn't have them in the rock if they weren't alive, right? Where do we find these rocks with all these dead animals in them. We find them on top of every mountain range. You know what that tells you about mountains? They were once under the ocean, and they were under the ocean when there was already life on this earth. If you've taken any earth science courses, that does not match up with what earth science teaches you. They teach you the earth was a molten mass that wrinkled as it cooled forming mountains and valleys, the waters collected. As the waters ran down the sides of the minerals, they absorbed some of those minerals, and the waters started to become salty. The ancient oceans formed, and from the ancient oceans, life evolved. Sorry, these guys were already in the rocks before those mountains came up. It doesn't fit observation. They don't tell you that in their science, do they? So we know that all this strata was underneath the ocean, it was all there prior to the mountains rising. And what in the world could do that? Because we don't see processes today of mountain ranges being built. 
We see local volcanoes coming up. We don't see the Alps, the Himalayas, those type of things happening. We don't see that force at work. Mountain building is considered a mystery in earth science. Read Psalm 104 and you're going to find out what happened. God, at the end of the flood, made the mountains to rise and the valleys to sink, for the waters to retreat in them, never to return again. God tells us where they came from, how he did it, and why we see what we see. And see, as an atheist, I never looked there. So the appearance of age, no, I see the appearance of a catastrophe. That, that's my favorite thing we've ever discussed, by the way. Like, I, 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 I never had thought of that before, about all these rock layers. I mean, you think about all the weight of the water pushing and stuff. and just I mean, it, it makes sense. So, awesome. We'll tell you what. So we're running out of time, so let's do a couple more questions from the crowd. Go ahead. You got another one back there? All right. Uh, did God cre- okay, this is a good question. Did God create the universe in seven consecutive days? Now, I, I, there, are, um, there are Christians who don't think this is the case. Uh, that they think that for sure maybe they were 24-hour days, but maybe there was big gaps in between them. And, um, uh, and, and, and I think the reason they do this is to, to give the appearance, that they give the, the long Yeah, that's years, a, right? let's go right to that. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. If you read Genesis, he says, I did this. It was evening, morning, day one. Then he says, I did this. And it was evening, morning, day two. And it goes through all six days that way. Have we all read Genesis 1? And we get done, we have a day of rest. And then God goes into Genesis 2 and gives us kind of a, let's zoom in and look at man during that seven days of creation. So he goes back and talks about Adam and Eve and the whole process of the garden. And eventually we get to the fall so we can understand where sin came from. In that seven days, nowhere do you see a gap. When Christians felt that the scientists had proven that the earth was millions of years old, they had a choice. Find the time or give up the Bible. So in Genesis 1-1 it says God created the heavens and earth. And then verse 2 says, and it became void. And they said, well, there it is. God created it, and then boom, he made it void. And between those two verses, Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, there must be millions and millions of years. Well, why would God do that? Well, that's probably when Satan fell, and God was honked off and wiped it all out. So the Genesis gap must have been a result of the satanic fall when God wiped it all out and started again in Genesis 2 to recreate. That's the gap theory. The problem with that is, where did death come from? Through one man... Sin entered the world, and through that sin, death, and the whole creation groans. I'm sorry, you can't have a gap before Adam was created, or the Bible's wrong. Why do I need salvation? Because Adam sinned, and I'm a descendant of Adam. I need to be saved. Well, sorry, death happened a long time before Adam was ever created, because the gap killed millions of animals. And all those animals that were dead during that gap had nothing to do with the second creation. Scientists laugh at that explanation. So you got Christians who modify the Bible to make the scientists happy, and the scientists look at that explanation and say, that's ridiculous. They don't buy it. It did nothing other than weaken the Bible. Well, maybe a day is not a day. Maybe a day is an age. So that first million years was day one when God created the universe. That was the Big Bang. And then day two came along, and he, he separated the waters, and the dry land starting to appear, 
and, and day three comes along and we get vegetation, right? Plants are starting to evolve. Except God blew it. He talked about fruit with seeds in them. And no evolutionist believes that a seed-bearing animal or plant happened until much later in evolution. So maybe God just blew that when he put that seed business in there. But then day four comes. And what happened day four? Come on, impress me. What? Wait a minute. We had plants living a million years before the, the sun was created? I don't know if I'd buy that one. I mean, that's what it says, right? So if we, if we look at the days as being millions of years, now God not only blew it when he put seeds in there, but he put them out of order. So he really should have said the sun was created earlier so we could have plants. And then we come along with day five, and what's day five? We had the fish, right? And what else? The birds. The birds come from reptiles, which aren't going to be created for another million years on day six. I mean, God was not a zoologist. He really blew it. So the day's theory says not only did he use the wrong words, he got his order all mixed up, and man, I can't trust this guy. The seven days of creation lead us to this perfected world, and he made it perfect for one reason, for you and I. He made everything for Adam and Eve, created it perfect. Exodus 20.11 says we have a seven-day work week. We work six, rest one. Why? Because in six days, God created the heavens, the earth, and all that is in them. And then he rested. You understand why we have a 28-day month? Because of the solar. You understand why we have a 365, or the lunar, excuse me, the 365 year? Because of the solar. Why do we have a seven-day work week? Because God said it. There is no astronomical feature that makes a seven-day week. And man has honored that for, for historic sake. Why? Because God established it. I feel like I'm preaching. I'm sorry. Okay? That's one of the reasons I retired from Big Walnut and came to Genoa to teach, because I got tired of having my hands tied because I couldn't tell the whole story in the public school. Right. So that's, that's my, that is my soapbox. Is that enough? That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, tell you what, let's do, let's do one more in the back, and then, um, and then I have a way that I want to end this, so I'll have you help me with that. All right. Good. Let's do one more question. All right. Um, uh, oh, this is good. All right. Did science help you start believing in God, or did science help your faith in, in wait, or did science help your faith in God keep going? Is that what it's supposed to say? All right. Uh, okay, so yeah. if I say I had a Damascus experience, would you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so when, when Mike Smith was 25 years old, I flipped my Volkswagen out on the freeway in the middle of rush hour traffic. My Volkswagen was dancing around between tractor trailers and cars. By the time I got stopped, my orange Volkswagen was now silver. I was on the side. This is before you had to wear seat belts. I had no seat belt on. I remember looking through my windshield and my windshield was gone. And the mirror was the only thing between me and the outside. I reached up, I grabbed the mirror, I snapped it off, I walked out through the opening, and I looked up and I said, you got my attention. I was 25 years old, I had not been in a church for eons of time, and suddenly the gospel message came to me, and the voice I heard was a guy by the name of Larry Littner, who was my sixth grade Sunday school teacher, who I thought I had blown off when he was giving me all these lessons. I thought I had not listened to him. And suddenly, when my conversion happened, I heard Larry's message. 
which was telling me of the gospel. So I became a Christian because I met the Lord. Now, my science was still in my head. I've always loved science. Are there questions in the Bible I can't understand scientifically? Yeah. It doesn't affect my faith. There may be breakthroughs in science that helps me understand some things that maybe I misunderstand today. I do my best to try to explain it. Gang, you understand that prior to the fall, we don't even know if the laws of science that we study today were in operation. Adam and Eve were not supposed to die. There's things that were going on there that don't fit with today's world. There were not carnivorous animals in the, in the garden. Something changed. So I'm using today's science, today's observations, to try to explain what happened way back then. So my science does not make my faith. My wife, my wife gets, she's in the back right now, she gets fed up with me because I go to the Creation Museum and I read all their scientific facts and I look at the ark, I go to the actual ark encounter and I see the way they built it and how they designed it so that it could survive and it would be that long and they try to explain how all the water was collected so they could feed and water all the animals and they got all this nice science and my wife looks at me and she said, if he wanted to build it out of paper mache and make it float for a year, he could have done it, I don't care. I can't do that. My science mind wants to understand all this stuff. My wife's faith simply says, he said it, that's it. But the bottom line is, no, my science did not lead me to God. But every time I see more and more facts that support the biblical position, it gives me more and more confidence in the Bible and to trust it and who God is. Also, I'll tell you what it does. The more I study, I realize how stupid I am. I say, let there be light. I turn on a switch. Right? And I can give you all the mathematics for light equations. He didn't give the equations. He created the relationships. He created those equations. The more I studied, the more I realized, wow, why am I ever questioning him? I have no right. I have no idea what he, he's capable of or what he's thinking. I hope I answered that question. That's, no, that's good. That's really good. Tell you what, let's, we'll, we'll finish one last question, okay? And then um, here's the question is, I, I don't, I, I know there's a couple of you guys in here that I are, are new to me. I haven't met you before, and I'm glad that you're here. And, and I know that there's people in this room that, uh, that probably are not Christian, okay? I, I'm being completely aware of that. Um, if, if you had to tell somebody in this room uh, why, um, who maybe is not a Christian, who believes in evolution, what, what is the significance of believing that a God created us? Like, why? why Tells why? me I'm not alone. Okay. If, if evolution's true, then the God of evolution, if he exists, is not a personal God. He's not actively involved in your life. There's no sense praying because he really has nothing to do with what's going on. So prayers is just an exercise of futility. When things happen in your life you don't understand, it's totally by random chance it happened. Next to my wife is my daughter. Erin was hit by a drunk driver when she was 19. She was an all-star volleyball player at Ohio Northern going into College of Engineering. She was put in a coma for over a year. When they sent us home, they told us put her in an institution, she would be a vegetable. She was 19 years old. She was doing everything right. She was going to Red, White, and Boom with some friends. It was about 5.30 at night. The sun was shining. There was no reason in the world other than a gentleman decided to start drinking about noon that day 
and was so drunk that he didn't even know he hit the motorcycles when he did. Two young men were killed instantly, or one was killed instantly, one was killed on day three. Erin was in the process of dying on day three. Her brain was swelling, the pressure was going up, the doctors told us to be prepared. If I didn't know God, I couldn't have survived that incident. Debbie and I, at that point, shared with each other that if he's our Lord, he's the Lord at good times and at bad times. We couldn't pick and choose. And if I was going to trust him, I needed to trust him. My daughter, who was in seventh grade, came to the hospital that night, and Debbie and I had just had this conversation. And I remember Leslie looking at us, and she was happy. And I said, why are you so happy? She said, well, I can tell by the way you and Mom are acting that Aaron's going to be okay. I said, honey, all I know is God's in control. I don't know if she's going to be okay. But I know God has a plan. And I may not always understand that plan, but I can trust it. If I wasn't a Christian, I couldn't go through that. I couldn't get up every day and go to work and do what I do if I didn't trust that God had laid a plan and I was doing my best to walk that path. And I'm not perfect. Don't talk to my wife too much. She'll tell you all the reasons why I'm not perfect. But the reality is I try. I try to do my best. And that's what I know as a Christian I would not have as a non-Christian. That confidence to know that nothing passes his attention and nothing's going to happen to me that he doesn't have control over. That's great. Um, that's awesome. Let me, let me finish by saying this. Actually, can you guys give Mr. Mike Smith a big round of applause? Yes. Look. Um, so, um, I, I'm, I, won't, I don't want to speak out of turn. Can you hang around for a couple minutes afterwards? If, if, any, of you, if any of you guys have any questions that you didn't text, and maybe there's something you're struggling with, Mike will be up here. Uh, you can come on up. He's a super nice guy. I don't know if you've caught that by now, but uh, super nice. Great to talk to. Um, uh, I was talking with him the other day. We were kind of preparing some of the questions that we were talking about. And he, he uh, referenced one of my favorite movies ever, Interstellar. And he used that to, like, connect it to uh, some science theory. So if you get a moment, go, you should ask him about it. It's pretty awesome. But let me just say this. For, for if you're in this room and, and you are not a Christian, uh, maybe this is your first time in church. That's awesome. That's great. Maybe you've been in church for a long time. You've been coming here, and I know you extremely well. And you still just haven't taken that, that leap into Christianity. Let me just, I'll, I'll tell you what, what happened for me when, when I, um, what really kind of clicked for me in terms of the evolution and the creation thing is that if you believe in evolution, if you believe that the Big Bang happened and all this stuff happened, we are here by just random chance, which means there's, there's, there's no point, right? I mean, it was just a freak accident that we're here. The Big Bang happened and boom. Like, uh, all this, this happened and now we're here. Um, if, if that's the case, then it really doesn't matter what you do in your life because everything ends when you die, right? However, if you believe that a God created the universe, the, the beautiful thing is, uh, what's the last thing he created? It was humanity, right? It was, it was us. And, and that shows that we are the pinnacle of his creation. We, we are his masterpiece, if you were. He made us and he goes, all right, now I'm done. That's awesome. And so, so what I want you guys to realize is that if you're not a Christian and you believe in evolution, guys, I'm telling you that when you believe that God created, that God loved us so much that he created us, that means that we have purpose and we have value in life. You can't believe in purpose and value if you believe in evolution because it's a freak chance where it all ends when you die. 
However, guess what doesn't end when we die if we've given our lives to Christ? Us, right? We, we get to live with God forever. So, guys, that's, for me, the best part of being a Christian is, is that value and that purpose that, that I feel that, that I have because I was created in God's image. So, I want to pray for you guys real quick. Uh, Mike will be hanging around up here. Feel free to ask him. Try to stump him, seriously. Try, try to stump them and see what happens, all right? And maybe, maybe someone will have a question you can't answer. I don't know. You said, and, and that, that's what I, that's, that is one thing I love about you is you say, you know, I, I don't have all the answers, right? And, and, and that's the thing is I think a lot of people think science is the, the, the knowledge of everything, but science literally is us observing things, right? And so, so there are things that we just, we just don't know yet and probably things we're not going to know until we get to heaven, which when I get to heaven, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask out a lot of questions. I'll be like, tell me about this, tell me about this, right? So. Yeah, that's right. He says, does Adam have a belly button, right? It's a true, trick question. All right. Let me pray for you guys real quick, and then we will uh, we'll dismiss, all right? Uh, dear God, thank you so much for this, for this night. Thank you for, uh, for Mike Smith coming and just giving up his night to, um, to hang out with us and, 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 and you know, try to uh, fill us in on some uh, information when it comes to the evolution and creationism debate. And God, I, I don't even claim to to fully understand everything Mike said tonight because there's a lot to it. But, but God, what, what's great is um, I loved hearing Mike's heart tonight where, where it's all about a relationship with you, God. You give us that value. You give us that purpose. And, and my prayer, Lord, is that um, hopefully tonight there was some answers that were given that can, that can help somebody in this room just take a step past some of the doubts that they have about you and just be willing to, to, to give their life to you, God. And and so, Lord, I pray for the people in this room who don't know you, who have never given their life to you, God. I pray that you, um, you uh, just give them a burning passion in their heart to grow closer to you. And, God, for the people in this room who are Christians, Lord, my, um, my prayer is that we can hear these things that Mike spoke about tonight and that we can just uh, use it as a reassurance of our faith, God, that, that time and time again evolution is... Uh, is presented with problems in its theory, but, but creationism seems to stand, it's, it stood the test of time, God, where as many people have tried to disprove it over and over again, uh, the Bible is still a reliable source, Lord, that just can't be disproved. So, God, um, we thank you for this night. We pray for the rest of the week that it goes great, and we, uh, we love you so much. We pray this in your name. And all of God's children said, amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.